we've been learning about Peter and Paul, these disciples of the Lord Jesus, who were called, who were called to begin to preach. And we were focusing sometimes on on Peter, and then the book of Acts then took a a turn in the theme of what we were going to be studying and understanding. It began to talk specifically about Paul, who was Saul, and his Greek name was Paul. And God had changed this man. As Saul, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a man who was on the hunt to find Christians, to bring them before judges, and to have them persecuted. But when Christ grabbed a hold of his life, he can do nothing but ask Jesus, Lord, who are you and what do you want me to do? They're on the road to to Damascus. And Paul then continued in his study of the Lord. He went back to his hometown after preaching the gospel. And there Paul was being poured into by other disciples. And he then was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Lord spoke by the Holy Spirit to the disciples there in the church and said, set apart Paul and Barnabas. And so they said, okay, we're going to send you guys now on your first missions trip. And Paul then and Barnabas went out to go to their missions trip and they took along with them Mark. These guys remember last week we were reading about how they were pouring into the young man named Mark. And they're journeying on their missions trip and they're preaching the word and as they would come across the gentiles or the jews sometimes they would receive uh, a welcoming and sometimes people would receive the word of god but many times paul and barnabas were their gospel was rejected and many times they found struggles and times of feeling like their mission was not successful but they didn't let that stop them from losing their joy. We're going to read about that this morning. So Paul is preaching in Antioch. He's on his, again, first missions trip with Barnabas. And as they go there to Antioch, Paul, as was custom, he first goes to the synagogue of the Jews. And he begins to give them this this preaching to proclaim Christ to them. The Jews Many of them didn't know about this gospel that Jesus Christ had died for their sins. They only knew of the Old Testament. And when Paul begins to preach, what I love about what Paul does, he takes them back to their history. Their history of their forefathers. You know, in our life, many times we can idolize our forefathers and our parents. We many times look up to them if they were a good father and to a point we we error in thinking that they were much better than the reality and that's what the Jews did they thought of their forefathers as these men who were there when God gave Moses the law and they thought of their forefathers the Jews thought of the 12 tribes of Israel the sons of of Jacob, as these men who were faultless. But Paul takes these Jews back in history and reminds them that even their forefathers had struggles, that even their forefathers had to wrestle with the will of God. I titled the study this morning, The Will of God, because In Paul's preaching, one of his main themes that he consistently wants to talk about is he gives us the difference of men who are submitted to the will of God versus men who are not 
And he began to remind them about Saul, the king who the Jews were so adamant about having. They said, we wanted to have an earthly king. And going against what God had originally given them, which was a theocracy to be governed by God. So finally, God said, okay, I'm going to give you a king. That's King Saul. And King Saul was a man who was not after God's own heart, but he was a man who would sin and be disobedient to the Lord. And Saul was not repentant in all these things. Until finally, after Saul was removed from being king, God raised up the man David, the small runt of the family, son of Jesse, who nobody thought at the time would amount to to much, was chosen by God. And he was chosen by God because God knew that he was a man after God's own heart. So Paul is explaining this, reminding them, look at the difference between Saul, who was not submitted to the will of God, and David, who was. A man who, David was still a guy who would sin and fall, and he would mess up, but he was repentant. He would come back to the Lord. So as Paul is is preaching this, we're going to pick up right in the middle of his sermon in Acts chapter 13, and we're going to start at verse 23. It says, From this man's seed, that man being David, According to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. You see, David was given a promise. Remember, he wanted to build this temple. He wanted to do something great for God. He was thinking in his mind, man, I I live in such wealth. I live in luxury. But God is dwelling out there in the tents in the Ark of the Covenant. And so he called the prophet Nathan to himself and said, hey, I want to build the temple for God. And Nathan, without going before the Lord and praying about it, said, David, do all that is in your heart. And then uh, as Nathan went home that night and he was going to sleep, God pulled him aside and said, hey, Nathan, I need you to go back to David and tell him that he cannot build this temple for me. That he's a man of war, a man with blood on his hands. But tell David, my servant, this. Tell him that I'm going to build him a temple. I'm going to build him a house. And from his seed, one is going to sit on that throne for eternity. And when David heard this promise, he knew he was talking about the Messiah. And David was then overjoyed with this idea that though his plans that he had to do something great for God were completely changed, God had something better. God had given him that promise that the Messiah would come through his family. And this Savior of Israel that we read about in verse 23 Israel had been waiting for for many years for a savior. They had been enslaved to Egypt for 400 years, 400 plus years. And then finally, when Moses led them out of the wilderness and through the wilderness to the promised land, they would constantly go from being submitted to God and then turning to idols so that the Lord would have to chasten them And many times that was through other nations. So Israel was in a time in their life where they were, as a nation, experiencing constantly being under captivity, constantly being occupied by other world nations. The Medes and the Persians, and after them, the Greeks, and after the Greeks, the Romans. And so they were waiting for this Messiah to come to liberate them but they were 
getting confused on thinking that the Messiah was going to liberate them from the Roman government, when in fact the Messiah was going to liberate them from sin and from hell. And this is through Jesus. He says in verse 24, after John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. See, he's reminding them that even John the Baptist preached of this coming Messiah to the Israelites. If you look at at John the Baptist, at his work, what he did during Jesus's ministry, you guys remember John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin. And he would was called full of the Holy Spirit to lead people to repentance. And so he would go there by the Jordan River and he would baptize people. He would baptize them. And many times the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they would see what was going on and they'd be like, who, who is this guy that he's baptizing? So they would come and ask him, who are you? We read about this in John's gospel, chapter one. In John 1, verses 23 through 27, it says, Who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. They're asking John the Baptist. What do you have to say about yourself? And John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice of one shouting in the wilderness. Clear the way of the Lord's coming. And the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, If you aren't the Messiah or Elijah the prophet, or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? And John told them, I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. You see, this is what John was preaching out there in the wilderness. When he proclaimed that, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Many times we think of a literal wilderness. We think of, uh, of the desert. Or we think of even the, the world, the lost world. But John's message was for Israel. John's message It's for the church. And what was Israel being described as? The chosen people of God were being described as a wilderness, something that's dry and barren. Because that's what happened to the Israelites. They got so far from the heart of God. And many times in our life, in our hearts, It becomes that dry, barren place because we're separated from the Lord. And so we need that voice to shout to us, clear the way for the Lord's coming. It says in verse 26 of Acts 13, men and brethren, Paul continues, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God To you, the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Paul right here, he's giving a, a rebuke now to the Israelites. He's saying, look, we were the chosen ones who were given the prophecies of the Messiah and yet we were the ones who crucified him. We were even fulfilling the prophecies that we would read about every Sabbath. It says in verse 28, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate 
that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And now he's going over the crucifixion of Christ. How he was sinless. He had no cause to be put to death. So they brought him to Pontius Pilate because the Jews themselves were not allowed to have that death penalty. They weren't allowed to carry that out. So they went to the Romans so that Pilate can do it for them. And when Pilate had allowed them to crucify him, they then took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. And then in verse 30, there's a, two words right there that I love to hi- highlight, to underline in my Bible. Because I love this phrase. It says, but God raised him from the dead. Those two words, but God. Perhaps uh, when Jesus was being crucified, Satan perhaps was thinking that he himself was being victorious now over God's kingdom. But God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead and Satan had to then be fearful and realizing that he had lost this battle, this battle of, of hell and of sin. And I think what phrase, but God, what can we apply that to in our life? You know, we were sinners, but God. We were without finances, but God. We were without food, but God. We were lonely, but God. We were confused, but God. Allow God to guide us in what we need. God is everything we need. He's truth. He's the door. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. So we can come to him as his children, knowing that God already is everything we need. And in verse 31, he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. Now, again, Paul is giving some, uh, not apologetics. Oh yeah, apologetics, a defense for the faith, for the Christian faith. He's saying that there was many people who were witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. You know, many people and critics of the word of God, of the Bible, will claim that people didn't see the resurrected Christ or that people maybe even imagined seeing him because they were so distraught. But when you look at history, look at the historian's such as Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian. And even in secular history, this historian wrote that Christ suffered the extreme penalty at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And then he even wrote about how there was a most mischievous superstition broke out in Rome and Judea, referring to this resurrected Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 4 through 8, Paul claims that Jesus appeared to over 500 people. Now, these people were still alive during the time that Paul was writing to the Corinthians. So they would have known if he was being false, and Paul would have had that assurity that I I can write this because it's true. And the idea that all these people, over 500 people that saw the resurrected Christ, that they all were imagining seeing Christ, it's, it's ridiculous because 
you can't share all the same dream with 500 people. So Paul is reminding the Jews, he's proclaiming to them the truth about the resurrected Christ. And then in verse 32, and we declare to you glad tidings, the promise which was made to the fathers. You know, sometimes I think as believers, we have have a, a gift that we have an opportunity to be joyful to people. Where despite our situation that we're going through in our life, we have these glad tidings that we get to carry. You know, sometimes in our life, we can just be focusing on all the, the trials and the things that we don't have. And when we do that, sometimes we miss out on being a witness to other people that God is in our life, that Christ is in our heart and in our mind. I think of our, my coworkers, I think of my friends and family members who I want to come to the Lord. And I want to remind myself that I need to be that witness. I might be the only Bible that people ever read my life the things that I do? Am I proclaiming these glad tidings to my friends and family members? Am I sharing and using the name of Jesus in conversation with people? Even I myself, uh, I, I want to be inviting people to church. Right now we're living in a season of so much fear and of of uncertainty in our, our world. And it's our duty to, to share that love with people. We think that we need to sometimes be these evangelists that go out and to have a set time to be an evangelist, but our evangelism should be 100% of the time. Where it's not that we're scheduling time to to be an evangelist, but everywhere we go, we should be that person who's ready to give a a testimony, ready to to pray with someone. Want to know good ministry? Good ministry is asking yourself, have I prayed with someone today? Because that's, we can do that, right? To pray with someone. When you pray with someone, you, you set them back, their mind, their heart on God, not yourself, but you help them to focus back on wh- who is going to be their savior. And this is the evangelism that, that Paul and Barnabas would do everywhere they would go. It says in verse 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. See Paul right here, he's implying that the Lord Jesus is called the son of God because he raised him from the dead. And God even promised to Jesus, as we just read, that he would receive these sure mercies of David. Now, what is he talking about right there? Remember what the promise that we talked about that King David was given, that through his son, there would sit someone on the throne for eternity. So if Jesus was given this promise that the Messiah, his kingdom would reign forever, God gave him that promise, then Jesus also knew that God would not fail him. His father would not fail him. And if Jesus knew that God wouldn't fail him, and then Jesus was crucified and resurrected, 
how much more do we have ability to trust in our God? Romans 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? You see, God loves us so much that he was willing to allow his son to die on the cross for our sins. He didn't spare him. So how shall God not willingly also give us this love? It wasn't he didn't just allow his son to die on the cross for nothing. He did it because he loves us. And now that he, we, we are experiencing this love, he wants to, us to do things in this lifetime that we have. He has a calling for our life. It says in verse 35, Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he served his own generation, by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. And notice in verse 36, again, we have that phrase, by the will of God. See, David was called by the will of God. And David, because he was human, he, he died. He passed away. But Christ, God raised him up so that he saw no corruption. And again, there's this idea of those who are under the will of God and those who are not under the will of God. Many times in our life, we can struggle with that idea of what is the will of God for my life? Turn to Romans chapter 12. actually right after the book of Acts. And in Romans chapter 12, God allows us to give us, give us a simple answer to what the will of God is in our life. Because many times, Christians, we struggle. What is the will of God in my life? Paul, again, is writing this to the Romans. He says this to them. He says, I beseech you, meaning I beg you. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, this is the will of God for our lives. That our bodies would first of all be a living sacrifice to him. Not a dead sacrifice, but a living one. Meaning every day the old man dies. Our old selfish nature is put on the cross. And the new man is given life. We follow after God separated unto him and that we're not to be molded into the shape of this world. We're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by what? By being given this new mind that God gives us. And by doing this, we prove the will of God in our life. That's what God desires. Holiness. Many of our confusion in life, much of our confusion on the will of God in our life would simply be solved if we would just be holy. Just be holy before the Lord. And as we do this, he gives us that peace. He gives us that fulfillment that we are 
fulfilling what he's called us to do. You see, we're all made for a purpose. We're made for God's plan. And as we walk in this plan that he has for us, suddenly we're fulfilled. Suddenly we're joyful. We are his vessel made for good works. And this was what Paul is preaching to these Jews there. He is preaching to them on how Christ was supposed to be superior to everything else in their life. That even their forefather, David, who passed away and saw corruption, recognized that Jesus was going to be the Messiah. In verse 38, back in the book of Acts, Paul continues, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. Now, this is what I love about the believer's life is our justification. You see, all have sinned and we are all deserving of death and of hell. But because Jesus died for our sins, it's just as if I'd never done anything wrong. When we accept him, the Bible teaches us that his mercies are new every morning. And sometimes we think, well, you know, is it I have to work for a few days and be good for a few days and holy for a few days and then me and God are in a good place? No. It's the moment we say, I'm sorry. The moment we ask God for forgiveness, he's there to meet us. And we can share this with other people. We can share this with our, our friends, our family members, our coworkers. You know, sometimes people have a hard time dealing with how God could just forgive a sinner of even the most terrible sins. But that's because we're human. We don't understand how, how deep God's love is for us. That Christ put all that on himself. When we look at ourselves in an, in an honest perspective, for those who might think that, well, murderers are the worst people and adulterers, and these are the, the worst sins. Um, when we look at ourselves and the way that Jesus wanted us to measure up to the word of God, Jesus said that if you were to even look at, at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus said that if you have hatred in your heart for your brother, then you've already committed murder in your heart. So Jesus set the bar so high that we, his disciples were like, well, then who can be saved? It's going to be impossible. And Jesus reminded them, with God, all things are possible. And now that we have this this freedom in our lives. We don't have to work for God to love us. His love, it's eternal. But here's the thing. Sometimes what we do is we open ourselves up to God's love and then when we turn away and turn to sin, we close ourselves off from the love of God being in our life. So all of a sudden we feel condemned. We feel the guilt and the shame without Christ being there. So that's when we need to turn back to God. Paul goes on in his preaching. He says in verse 40, Beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which will by no means believe you will believe though no one were to declare it to you. 
So here Paul is saying, he's giving them a, a stern warning. He's saying, look, beware, lest what happened to those who heard these words in the past come upon you. And he quotes from Habakkuk. He reminds them to beware of rejecting the gospel and of fulfilling their own will. See, God used many times other nations, as we stated before. He used other nations to chasten his children. And in the book of Habakkuk, we read about how in his time, Israel would turn against the Lord and worship a false god. And so the Lord allowed the Chaldeans, another nation, to come and overtake them, to enslave them. And their land was destroyed and their temple was also destroyed. And God was telling Habakkuk to say this to the people, look, marvel and perish. So I'm about to do something that you're not even going to believe, even though I'm declaring it to you. You see, the, the Israelites thought God will protect us no matter what. He won't allow us to see destruction. But God allowed them to have their temple be burned down. And constantly the, the Lord would have to chasten his children through these different nations. There is a historical monument known as Masada there in Israel today. Now Masada, it, it's not found in the Bible, but it's found in history. And the big artifact of Masada is still there to this day. You could go visit it. So out there in the Israeli desert, there's this mountain, this, this small mountain. And on top of this mountain, King Herod built a fortress. And he built it almost as a vacation getaway. But when the Romans came, around BCE 30s, when the Romans came, they were enslaving the whole world. And they came to the Israelites Masada was the last stronghold for the Jewish people. And so all the Jews, they, they ran up to Masada. Thousands of them. And then as they were there, some of them had already been conquered elsewhere in Israel and were already under captivity. But this was the last stronghold of the Jews who were still free. And when the Romans came, This fortress was thought to be impenetrable, so the Jews were able to hold them off for some time until finally the, the Romans, they, they breached the main doors at the bottom of Masada, and they broke through, and the Jews became fearful. And all the Romans gathered together now, and the Romans knew, okay, we've already broken through their, their fortress door. So the Romans, before they attacked, they stayed there the night before, and they partied and had just this big celebration because they knew the next day they were going to go up there and conquer the Israelites. And the Israelites also knew that they were beat. They were scared. So that night, they decided rather to be taken into captivity by the Romans, they decided that hundreds of them were all going to commit suicide rather than to be taken enslaved again like they had been in Egypt. And so all of them committed suicide except for a servant girl and some children. And when the Romans finally went up there to, to go conquer, what they found was just death everywhere, dead bodies. And even the Romans were, were heartbroken over this. And what I see as I, I see about this in history is how even then God was allowing his children to be chastened. You see, this happened during the time of 400 years of silence. At the end of Malachi to the beginning of when John the Baptist finally came, there was no revelation of God. It was 400 years of silence where God was not speaking to any prophets. He was not speaking through any prophets. And these 
400 years were, were dark times. You have the medieval ages during this season. And then finally, in God's appointed time, he sent John the Baptist to proclaim the way of the Lord. He was that voice shouting in the wilderness, reminding people to make straight in their heart what God wanted to do. Paul continues in his, his sermon in verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now this is awesome because the Gentiles here, they're so hungry for the word. They're more receptive than the Jews. And many times those outside of the church are more willing to receive than people who are backslidden and who grew up in the church. Sometimes it's, it's hard for you to persuade a, a, a person who knows the Bible and who knows Christianity to submit their life to the Lord. That's something only the Holy Spirit can do. What do you tell people who already know the Bible, who already know what salvation means? Maybe who even know the Bible better than you do. What do you tell that backslidden Christian who's heard it all? The only thing that you can point them back to is Christ's love. Of what Christ is doing in their life, has done. And that's something that you would have to ask the Holy Spirit to empower you and to lead and guide your words on. But here in Antioch, what we see and recognize that the, Jew, the Gentiles are begging that these words would be preached to them on the next Sabbath. Are we hungry for the word of God like these Gentiles were? Are we so dependent on God's word that we want to get all the wisdom and truth out of the Bible that we possibly can? When we're having our morning time of reading in a prayer, when we're having our evening time of reading in prayer on our, by ourselves? Are we expecting God to speak to us? In verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. See right here, we have what's called religious envy. The Jewish leaders, they were envious of that. All these Gentiles were so enraptured by Paul's words. Sometimes even in Christian ministry, we can have this religious envy slip in, a competitive mentality in the work of God, where we uh, begin to look at other believers in the Lord and, and envy their gifts that God has given them. But that's because we're looking at the vessel and we're not looking at the person who gave that person the gift, which is God. I would encourage us to remove ourselves from this competitive mentality. And that when we see God using someone mightily to, to praise the Lord rather than to look with envy. And then in verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Again, here is Paul and Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit with boldness, saying that, look, we brought this gospel to you Jews first. And you guys are rejecting it. So now we're going to go to the Gentiles. 
In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So the gospel, it was given to the Jews first. They were the chosen people of God to then give this message to the whole world. And when those disciples were given this message and they brought it to their their Jewish brothers, they were rejected. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's for the Jew and also for the Gentiles. And that we see that was Paul's pattern. He would always first go to the synagogue to preach. And then in verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul again here is is showing his knowledge of the word of God. Paul was a man who would be able to quote scripture and he didn't have the text of the scroll of Isaiah there in front of him. He just knew this off the top of his head. He was quoting from Isaiah chapter 49, verse six, where God says, and this is out of the New Living Translation, but in Isaiah 49, verse six, we read, he says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. See, God was telling and prophesying that Jesus was going to bring Israel back to him. God's not done with his people, Israel. Don't get confused in that. You might hear people begin to tell you that the church, the Christian church, is the new people of Israel, the new spiritual Israel, but that's not accurate. And when you do that, you begin to then interpret the rest of the Bible and the book of Revelation and eschatology all kinds of funny ways. You don't take things literally anymore. But God is not done with his Jewish people. In verse 48, it says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. You see, they were glad there. They glorified the Lord. But notice it says, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now there's a, quite an interesting idea. Is it that we are chosen by God or do we choose God? The Bible teaches both. Well, it's like, well, who chooses who first? And who's responsible here? If we're chosen by God, then there's nothing that we can do to uh, gain salvation. So then we're eternally secure at that point and we take away man's responsibility. See, there's some doctrines that believe that, that there are people who can never be saved, that God's atonement is only for those uh, select few And we're all on this track that if you're not chosen of God, then that's it. And that gets people scared and confused. And well, like, how do we know? Well, it's both. God chooses those people who he knows are going to choose him. And we will never fully understand the sovereignty of God, of how he's able to work through our responsibility and through the free will that he gives us. But we choose God and God also chooses us. The Bible teaches both. It says in verse 51, I'm sorry, verse 50. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women 
And the chief men of the city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Now, the Jewish leaders, as they were envious of what was being done through Paul and Barnabas, they went to these rich, prominent women and they would complain to them about what Paul and Barnabas were doing. And these women perhaps were then going to the chief men of the city, maybe even some of their husbands, to raise up these persecutions against Paul and Barnabas. And these were women were probably quite frightening as uh, they were bringing all these accusations against them. There is an interesting idea that we see when it comes to uh, some of the differences between man and woman. Women have this amazing ability to, to be, because uh, they could get so close to the Holy Spirit and the heart of God in their emotion. And this is awesome. That's something that for us men, sometimes it's hard to, to do that, to be able to put aside um, certain things about us and to be able to become emotionally connected with God. Uh, but women have this great ability to be able to be so close to the Holy Spirit. And on the contrast, women who are far from God, women who are enemies to God, also can go to great lengths uh, of depravity where they become so cruel. And so these type of women were going against Paul and Barnabas and they expelled them. They kicked them out of the region. It says in verse 51, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So what do we do when we're rejected? When we feel that we are rejected, when people reject the gospel, it simply says they shook the dust from their feet. They shook it off. And this was the model that Jesus told his disciples as they were going to go out into that region in Judea. He said, look, whoever doesn't accept you into their house and rejects, just shake the dust off from your feet and keep moving on. And we experience this. <laughs> when Lisette and I were going door to door uh, some months ago in West Covina to invite people to the Bible study that we had going on there. Uh, sometimes people were, were nice and would welcome us into their home, and which was kind of scary at times when they would welcome us into their home. Um, but other times people, as soon as we began to say that we were from a church, uh, sometimes they would rudely interrupt and be like, well, we already have a church, close the door on us. And uh, we, we would find that sometimes too, as people, as soon as they found out we were Christians and we were coming up to their doorstep, they wanted to close the door on us because they wanted nothing to do with God or with Jesus. And we didn't allow that to uh, make us quit. But all that did was say, whoa, and that was kind of crazy, huh? And then we kept going. We would go door to door and we'd invite people. I remember one night in particular, we gave out some flyers to this one house. And then the following week, uh, this couple arrived at the Bible study. And uh, as the Bible study ended, we asked them, oh, how did you guys find out about this? And they said, oh, someone came to our door and gave our mom this flyer. So we wanted to come check it out. And we saw how God was moving in the hearts of people. That sometimes we, we don't, see and think that God is is moving, but we don't realize what's going on behind the scenes in the spiritual realm of what God is doing. Many times we, we look at just what we see about numbers and about the, the stats of, of, of church and 
of people. But we forget to look at what God is doing about his son, Jesus. That people need to be led to Christ in the church, outside of the church. That we need to lead ourselves to Christ daily, every day. Not to reject what God is doing, but to ask him to fill us with the Holy Spirit in our life so that we could have our own missions journey here. And you don't have to go to Africa in order to to be a missionary. You can be a missionary right here in your home, with your family, with your coworkers, with your friends. And when you simply ask God, God, open a door for me to be able to share I would encourage you to just watch and see what God does when you do that. See how the Holy Spirit can make those doors open without you having to strive for it and struggle for it. But may you be submitted to the Lord and to his will this week so you can be that holy vessel acceptable for the will of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace and mercy. I pray and I ask, Father, that you would teach us, Lord God, your will. Teach us, Father, what it means to be set apart unto you. Would you fill us with your spirit, Lord, so that we might be like Paul and Barnabas? May we, Father, lead others to Christ. I pray and I ask, Lord Jesus, that your name, Jesus, would be on our mouth, in our heart, and in our minds. Lord God, that we'd share with others. Father, I pray, Father, for Christians to begin to rise up, Lord God, Father, lead and guide us. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Forgive us of our sins. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's end with one more song. May you be filled with Christ's love this week. Would you take this call that he has for you seriously? I want to encourage you guys to walk in his grace, knowing that there's nothing that you can do for him to love you anymore. He loves you eternally. Would you just make yourself available to him, to what he wants to do in your life. Would you lay your will aside and put him first?
Wednesday night.